near to the heart of God. What a wonderful place to be. I mentioned something about submarines yesterday, but you know, I was only a kid when I went 17 years old and saved three years. Um, a submarine is totally round on the inside. Outside it has a little different shape, but it's totally round. You have a torpedo room in the front and one in the after part. And there's a little hump that sticks up because to load the torpedoes in there, they're really long and they weigh close to 5,000 pounds, more than a, a car does. And so the pressure hull has a little hump here and a little hump back here. And there's a bunk that goes there when they're not loading torpedoes. It just about takes a spider monkey to get in it. <laughs> and I was about as close as anything they had. And... Um, and, I, and, and it's, no one wants it, so it's for new people that come on board. So I had the bunk um, where the torpedoes were loaded. Obviously, you don't load them at sea when you're uh, submerged. But you know it was private because I was just kind of up like in this capsule. And songs like that I would think of because when I first got on the submarine, I hadn't found anybody that was a Christian for a while. Out of those 75 men, I had uh, left the wife that I loved and... Um, about a two-week-old son that was here two years ago in a run-down trailer park in Charleston, South Carolina, without a car. And at night, sometimes, I'd just talk to the Lord, and the tears would flow. And, and I remember that kind of a cleft in the rock, so to speak, and that song, Near to the Heart of God. And we have a wonderful God. It hasn't occurred to most Christians, I think, what it would be like to have a bad God? You say he can't be. Well, this one can't. But what if the God that there was in existence was a bad God? Helps us to think about the perspective. We have the privilege to serve a wonderful, perfect God that loves us and cares for us. Well, I just want to say I've really enjoyed our short time here. Uh, enjoyed being a in the calf or lunchroom, whatever you may refer to it as. As some of you have come by, we've had a chance to visit for a little while. And I, I, I love visiting with people and always want to know where you're from. And if you were to come sit at the table and talk to me yesterday, I might not know that I did that. And young, I'm getting some years on me or something like that, and I get forgetful or whatever. But anyway, it's a privilege to be with you. And as I kind of mentioned yesterday, I'm thrilled to look at all the uh, opportunity that's before me. Matthew chapter 25, have your Bibles. I know that in the, the Greek, our primary word is logos, and that's the one that's used nearly all the time. There is one that might be pronounced rhema that also means word, and as best I can tell, it probably means a more particular word. If I were to ask some of you if you have a life verse, you might say, raise your hand and say, yes, I have a life verse then just in speaking like that, I might say, well, then that's a special part of the Scripture for you, maybe a particular word for you. The amazing thing about the Bible, and I don't know how many times I've read through it, but, uh, you know, and, and you do too on a regular basis, I'm sure, but isn't it amazing that a text that you have seen a number of times before was a fine text, you enjoyed reading it, but then it just kind of flames up from the page to you at a particular time in your life and God knows exactly when to make those things happen. Now it's hard for him to do that if you don't read it. But if you continually read his word, then I'm going to say to you that it's going to come up exactly at the right time. 
Now, we're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 14. And this is what we'd refer to as a kingdom parable. If you go back up to verse 1 of 25, it says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto, and then uh, there are parables that follow it. Now, a kingdom parable is kind of what I'm going to call a canopy a parable, an overarching parable. In other words, it's big in scope. Where you might think about the prodigal son, that'd be more like a domestic parable, has to do with a family or some others. Uh, but this one is, is just a big one. I think it was Francis Schaeffer that says evangelicals, and I know that we don't fit that name exactly, but we would be placed under that umbrella. He said that evangelicals are guilty of thinking in bits and pieces. Now, I can't disagree with that. I've been, in, since I got saved at 14, an independent fundamental Baptist, but it is true that sometimes we're guilty of thinking in bits and pieces, and we do not really see the whole, and I think this really helps. When I was a little boy in Texas, and a lot of flatland down in that area, I'd be trying to figure out the difference in a country and a state and a county, and I really kind of had a city right, but when I lived in the Fort Worth area, I'd say to my mom, Mom is... Um, is Fort Worth in Tarrant County? No, son, Tarrant County's in Fort Worth. Well, then, is Texas in Fort Worth, Mom? No, son, Texas is not in Fort Worth. Fort Worth is in Texas. And not until you take a big globe and look at it do you understand that the world's not flat. Now, in Texas, you grew up thinking it was, and you're going to run off the side, just like anybody else might have said years ago in a sailing ship. But this kind of gives us maybe an overarching period. And uh, so let's begin in verse 14, and, and you want to stretch or you want to just say seated? Let's stand. Let's give it. Hey, the body was made to stand, right? Most of the other creatures don't do that. And uh, so it's good for us. Verse 14 of Matthew 25. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he which had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise he that received two, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. Verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, that deliverest unto me five talents, behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and <clears throat> said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. 
His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it to him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast you the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Father, thank you for the privilege I have to be with these young people and to hear to be at the church and the good time my wife and I have enjoyed. I pray now that you'd illumine our hearts and minds to understand Bible truth. If I understand my Bible right, I think, Lord, you loved everybody in this room so much. If there'd only been one, you would have still died that they might have salvation. And you're a personal Savior, and you're interested in everyone here as a group, but you're interested in every single individual. And I hope we could always think about that when we read the Bible. It's, it is written for everyone, but it's, it's written to me, and I'm grateful. And so, Lord, whatever can be accomplished by our being together, we give you all the glory, all the praise, for only you're worthy, and we ask it in the most gracious name, and for Christ's sake, amen. Maybe seated. If I were to use a terminology that all of you have a launching pad, and, and maybe a lot of those would be similar, but a lot of those would be different. When you say launching pad, well, I kind of mean where you were born, how you are born, in the sense of what kind of family, what the conditions like, what so forth, and, and the family you got to grow up in. If you had a good launching pad, be very thankful for it. For instance, my little wife back here, she was born in uh, New York, but she never knew her dad, and her uh, mom was divorced and remarried uh, three times, and I only met the last one when we met at church after I got saved, and, and he was not a godly man, and uh, just a hard man, and, and then the other men that uh, my wife's mother had been married to had been married before too, and there was a pile of kids around that house, but hardly any of them had the same last names. I never did figure that crowd out totally or completely. As a matter of fact, after uh, my wife's mother left the first husband, or he left hers, what really happened uh, she kind of went out on a spree and just took my little wife down to Mississippi and put her on the porch kind of a, her grandparents' house, and, and that's what she had during that time. Well, that's a, not a very uh, good launching pad, but her grandmother loved her and did what she could. So what I'm trying to say here is we're all individuals, and we really have no idea where somebody else comes from. You know, I had a better home life than my wife's, but still maybe it's not as good a launching pad as some of you had. Now, my mom and dad both knew the Lord, and they were not Baptist people. My dad was a good man, and I may have mentioned already, I don't remember, but um, this section of Scripture kind of became, you know, that arraignment of me, and you'll understand in a few minutes, I think, because my dad only had a third-grade education. Some of you have heard about the Great Depression we had in America, and my dad grew up in that. So after the third grade, he went to work, and he worked the rest of his life. Now, I never saw my dad read a book of any kind, whether it was the Bible or anything else, and I understood when I got older, he could really only read some simple words. And if you just think for a moment, if you couldn't read, 
how intimidated you would be no matter what you did. You're having to ask somebody all the time. And I grew up with that. And you say, well, couldn't your dad have learned later on? I think probably he could. And I cannot tell you why he did not. I'm just saying that it didn't happen. But now don't misunderstand what I'm saying about my dad. He was a good dad in the sense that he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't curse, he worked hard, he was just a solid man. Um, I love my dad and I can't, I can't wait to see him again because all that's going to be different now, isn't it? <laughs> He'll be a different person like all of us will be in his opportunities. But my dad was not dumb, but my dad was ignorant in a lot of ways. Now you understand that's not a criticism. I'm just trying to describe the fact that he had not learned or had the opportunity to learn a lot of things and so when you when you grow up in that and my mom wasn't a real help she was a good woman and a good wife and a good mom but she didn't know how to encourage my dad she probably discouraged him I heard her say more than once William you're a hard luck man a guy just doesn't need that I think Job's wife might have said things like that now girls don't do that when you finally find the person God wants you to spend your life with I would hate to think where I might would be now if it wasn't from our little wife uh, thinking I can do everything. Now, if you guys don't know, ladies know how to do that. My wife can catch a little boy that's about six years old. She wants something carried and say, oh, look at those muscles. Do you think you could carry that? Boy, they kind of straighten up and everything. And uh, a lady can get a man to do a lot of things, and they're born with it, brothers, if you don't know that. But you can also be such a great in encouragement so then um, in my life I was always afraid to do stuff and I still remember about the third grade my dad had secured a job in Houston Texas and um, they had a choir of course and I'd remember they had practice and I'd kind of walk down the hallway and listen because I love music I'm, I'm not a musician but I love it and I thank you for all the work and what a place for music um, and I would stand out in the hallway just outside the door when they would practice, kind of wishing I could be part of it. I could not get enough courage to go in that door or talk to anybody. And I look back, because I did that too many days, just kind of standing outside the door in the hallway. One of the teachers caught on to that. And so one day she came out when all the students were coming out and kind of tricked me. She said, David. Uh, how she got my name, she must have really cared for the students because and, and, I wasn't in the choir. Uh, come in here for a moment. So I went in and she sat down on the piano seat and I sat down beside her and she just talked for a few minutes and where I was from and stuff and then she hit a key and she said, can you do that? And so I reproduced that. And after a few more times, she said, uh, you need to be here for choir practice tomorrow. I never will forget that little bit of help. I, so where am I going with this? I just want to say to you as an individual, God knows exactly where you are. And you can't help a lot of places where you are. But he's interested in everyone on this planet to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And don't you think he will enable you to do everything that you have the ability to do and I think maybe increase your ability. Now, I refer to this parable as a parable of the man who was afraid to try. If you read William Barclay, and I don't disagree with him, but he, he calls this the parable of the man who would not try. Well, then maybe it is between those two. 
Because probably, and I don't want to be negative about it, but most likely everybody in this class is not going to stay faithful and do the best they can. I'm sorry to tell you that. I remember a class one time that a friend of mine who was older than me and preceded me by a number of years, and a professor had said in that class in a little Bible college down in Arlington, Texas, used to be Bible Baptist Seminary, started by a man by the name of J. Frank Norris, and the teacher said, and it was all men's class, there's, not only, there's only two of you boys in here that ever be worth anything. And those two guys, there were two guys that were friends, and they said to each other when the class was over, one of them said, I'm going to be one of those. And the other guy said, by the grace of God, I'm going to be the other one. Amazing thing was, it pretty much came true. So here's the parable of the man who was afraid to try or would not try. And I don't want to be that man. I don't want to be that woman, ladies. You don't want to be that woman. And we all should be able to fit into one of the other two slots here. Now, Phyllis Brooks says there is in all of our cities a great multitude of useless men. And that's bad enough. But he goes on to say, and men that are perfectly content in their uselessness. Well, I suppose there are an X number of churches, and maybe in every church, a number of useless Christians. And it appears that a number of those are perfectly content to be useless. I'm not trying to be hard, but if you've been in church most of your life, and most of you probably have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What would a church look like when everybody in there was on fire in their heart for the Lord, close to the Lord, and wanting to accomplish what God wanted them to accomplish? Phyllis Brooks also made another statement that caught my attention. He said, the sin of doing wrong is no worse than the sin of doing nothing at all. What do you think? What well, great verse would you use, you know, for all have sinned and stepped over the boundary? Are we've all sinned because we come short? Are we not many times thinking about someone who lived a sinful life for all have sinned and stepped over the bound? We're thinking about the things they have done wrong. Maybe Brooks is on to something that the sin of doing wrong is no worse than the sin of doing nothing at all. And there appears to me to be X number of Christians that don't really do a lot. Do you dream? <laughs> I hope that you do. Now, I am not talking about what happens when you eat cheap pizza at midnight. That's a nightmare. That's not dreaming. I'm talking about thinking about what God might let me do. When I graduated from Bible college, I had two major concerns. Number one, I, didn't, I just feared, I didn't know what I would do, if I went to work for someone whose standards were lower than mine. Because I felt like what God gave me as standards came from the Lord and from His Word, and I felt real strong about keeping those. But what if that pastor's was lower than that, but I was supposed to be loyal to him too because I was working for him, and I feared that. And you may face that. And I prayed about it a lot, and the man I worked for was a godly man. His name was Raymond Tracy in Springfield, Missouri. I don't know if he ever preached a sermon, he didn't weep. And they called him the weeping prophet of Springfield. I just kind of like Jeremiah or something like that. The second thing I feared, and I think this is because of how I grew up, and 
again, was like my dad in particular. If my dad was here, if you knew him very long, you'd love the guy, but you'd never know the color of his eyes most likely because if he shook your hand, he wouldn't look you in the eye because he would probably have his head down a little bit like that. And so I think I kind of grew up thinking, and we did live on the wrong side of the tracks and all those sort of things, that maybe, you know, I really couldn't accomplish anything. And I was saying, Lord, if I get to work for a good man, and I did, Lord, I don't want to go out and try to, to pastor a church and tear things up. I, you've got to show me while I'm here as an intern that you can use me to do something. I've got to know. And Lord, I will, I will give it my best shot. So they gave us the college career class. And I wanted it to be an adult class. And uh, man, I love college career class. Now, I don't really want to be a youth director because you've got to deal with parents. <laughs> It'd be a great, if you've not been a youth director, you'll find out what that's like. And a college career class is like having a youth department with all the creativity and not have to deal with the parents. Now, I don't want to sound wrong about this, but we, we loved it. And I, the church didn't have much money, so they could only pay me for 20 hours a week. In fact, my, my paycheck was $50 a week. But we're going all the way back to 1970. And he said, I expect you to work 20 hours a week. So, man, my wife and I loved it. We hit the ground running. Our, our son would have been, what, seven years old about that time. And we were trying everything. If it wasn't illegal and wasn't uh, unscriptural, we tried it. Is that okay? Not illegal. It's not unscriptural. And my mind was on it just all the time. Our class was called the Calvary class. And so we started having volleyball and this and that. And I mean, we'd visit the campuses. In fact, we visited every college within 50 miles of Springfield, Missouri. I just have so many tales I'd love to tell you about. But one of them, I, we just grown a little bit. Took the class and it ran about 30 or something like that. And um, summertime, one of the students said, it's not good grammar, but he said, I'm about to hot to death. You know, it's summertime in Springfield, Missouri. He said, I wish we had a big, giant convertible. Man, a light went off in my head. We had an old 49 Ford church bus sitting on a lot that had been sitting out there as long as I'd been in that church three years. It never had moved. I talked to Brother Tracy about it. He, he'd give it to us, and he wouldn't. Man, he was tight. He's a World War II. One of those men that surrendered to preach from a foxhole but built a great church, and I, I love him. He's my dad in the ministry. He said, I'll sell it to you all for $300. So our class raised the $300, and I was still in the Navy Reserves, you know, but, but I'm, you know, I just had to, one time a year, had to go for two weeks. And the Navy Reserve had a shop, I mean, big shop. I said, can we use that for whatever? Oh, yeah, you can use it. I took that bus over there, and I cut the top off right below the windows all the way around. And then I put some aluminum metal around because that was kind of jagged, and uh, <laughs> Painted it thing or, painted it orange, and we called it the orange crate. So we had Bible college students from Baptist Bible College. That's not all we had, but that was our greatest single group. And there's SMS, and it's SMSU now, Southwest Missouri State University in Springfield. Back then had about, I would say maybe 12,000 students back then. And now I got one of these cage balls. Y'all know what a cage ball is? You know, they're, they're about this tall, and so they probably weigh about 150 pounds. And, and, of course, it was orange and blue. 
And so we would take Bible college students and put one in each seat. Of course, you could put two in a seat, and I wouldn't let two of them sit together. And then we'd go over to SMSU, right down on the campus, roll that big ball out. And you know, you couldn't tell any difference in those students than you could Bible college students. They all had two eyes, two ears, two arms, two legs. And those SMS students would come out of the dorms like cockroaches. They wanted to play. So we would beat that ball around for a while. And then we'd say, let's get on a bus and go down to Burger Doodle and get a drink. And every one of those SMS students had to sit beside a Bible college student. It was great. And they got interrogated. <laughs> what is your address? What's your room number? What is your major? I'm just talking about creativity. And man, the prospects begin to come in. Well, I can't spend so much time on that. But within about a year, it wasn't unusual to have over 200 in that college career class. And the man, first music director I had in Tulsa later on was a student at SMU that got saved over there. And the crazy thing about it is this coming September, we're going to have the second reunion of the Calvary class. We had one two years ago. Now, when someone said, let's have a reunion of the Calvary class, I said, I've never heard about a Sunday school class having a reunion. But we had one two years ago, and it had been 40-something years since I'd seen them. Sixty people showed up from coast to coast. I mean, just so committed. They were disciples to the end. And the Lord said during that time, Son, I can help you do whatever I call you to do. You know what I do down in my heart? He meant what he said. And he means what he says to you as well. And there's three things here that I'd like for us to take note about the man who was afraid to try. And, uh, and I may not have the best terminology on it, but I, hopefully you'll understand. The first thing is I, I believe he lightly esteemed the friendships that God brought into his life. Now, someone has said in 10 years, we're going to, the kind of person we're going to be is going to be determined by the people that we meet and the books that we read. I do not know that I can argue with that. But if I go all the way back in my life and take certain individuals out of my life, there's no way in the world I'd be anything where I am right now. I'm not claiming I'm where you would want to be. I'm just telling you compared to where I once was, uh, I have to give them so much credit. So here these three men are working for the owner of this business, whatever kind it is. And we don't know, nor do we know how long that they had worked there, nor do we know if there were other employees. I can only surmise maybe in my mind as I think about it that I think maybe this might be an older man. It takes a while to get a business off the ground and really get it going. I'm thinking maybe he might be looking for the next person that might take over that business and he kind of looks through the number of his employees he has. Well, maybe it's the only three. I don't know. Either way, it doesn't make a lot of difference. And he looks through there, and, uh, you know, he's going to pick some of those out. But here's the point. Every one of those men had the same opportunity up front. They all had the same boss. And they all had a chance to observe him and watch how he did things. I learned a long time ago, not only in Bible college, but in secular as well, don't just learn the information, learn the person that it comes from. When I worked for Raymond Tracy, the man I just mentioned a moment ago, I learned from his preaching, I learned from his teaching, but I figured out exactly how he ticked. 
He had never gone to Bible college in his life, of any kind of college in his life. I'm not sure he graduated from high school before he went into World War II and in one of those foxholes surrendered to the Lord. But I do know that he loved the Lord and he preached the book. And while I was working for him, our church has run up around 800. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to put Brother Tracy down. I love Brother Tracy. I can't wait to get to heaven and see him. Uh, but that God took an old foxhole boy, and he's kind of a farm boy, before he went into the war and, and do this with him. I believe in local churches. And when God leads us to a local church, just like you're in right now, he knows exactly on the areas that you're a little bit short on. And here's what I'm going to tell you I believe with all my heart. Whatever area you're short on, somebody in this church knows how to do it. This is a body. And you can learn from them. Now, neither my wife's parents nor my parents understood how to do their finances. Now, my dad worked hard. He wasn't late paying his bills, but he, he didn't really know how to save money or do whatever with it. And uh, Grace's family, because it was so mixed up and everything, probably was worse than that. And so we didn't really fully understand. We, we didn't know about that. We just didn't think that way. But the first people we found that knew how to do it was a youth director after I, what I got saved under and when I was 14 years of age. And then I watched them and was around them, and I, and I began to learn principles. And then when our son was born, we thought, well, we've seen families that have wonderful children you could really enjoy. But it seems today in America, the big thing that's in vogue now is not to enjoy your children, but to endure your children. For God's sake, that does not have to be. And I'm off the rabbit trail, I guess, just for a moment. I think it was C. Edward Deming that Douglas MacArthur sent to Japan to help the Japanese economically. And, and you're not old enough to know, but when I was a kid, I was born in World War II. Uh, after the war, Japan began to make stuff, but it was the biggest bunch of junk you have ever seen in your life. I hate cheap products that fall apart. And I'm not trying to be unkind to the Japanese. I love the Japanese. We have a Japanese daughter live with us 13 years. I love them. I'm talking historically that what they made was junk, and nobody wanted it. But C. Edward Deming had, if I'm, I may not be quoting it exactly right, but he's, this is about what he said. Your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. Now, if you've got a godly family that's doing well, your system's perfectly designed to get what you're getting. If you've got a family that's coming apart at the seams, your system's perfectly designed to get what you're getting. Now, that's hard to argue with because you see it happening. All you got to do is trace it back. I'm going to say that God is going to give you, while you're in this place, the opportunity to learn what you need to learn. And don't mistake this. This just burns me up with some people. You know your weakness. Don't ask somebody for help if you're not going to do what they say. You're wasting a good man's time. And they could be helping somebody else. Or a good woman's time. So the man that would not try. He just didn't really appreciate the people that God brought into his life. I think then the second thing here that we need to think about is he kind of ignored the opportunities that came his way. So you go give one man three talents, one man two, one man one. And I understand by the way you spell it, you could be talking about talents as far as money or talent 
but it can really work either way. The talent that you have in order with music, which is, I'm so glad you're doing. All children are, you know, we didn't get into that. No one helped us when we were kids, but we made sure our son got into it. And he does play the piano, and we're glad for that. So that's a good talent as well. But it can be just looked at the same way. We're talking about money right here at this particular point. So probably the first thing is he did not pay attention uh, to the opportunities that came his way. This, this book really talks about our responsibility and how we're going to stand before God for the opportunities that came our way and then what we did with them. So in verse 15, you know, he gives one three, gives one two, and he gives one one. And you're saying, well, that was completely unfair. No, God is not unfair. He's no respecter of persons. It says it in the book, and I've seen it too long. God is not unfair. I, what I love about verse 15, and I, if you haven't seen this and paid attention to it, under one he gave five talents to another two, another one. Listen to this. To every man according to his several ability. You cannot do better than that. The fact is you don't even know for sure what you can do. And I don't know. Nobody knows except him. But to whom much is given, much will be required. Sometimes I compare people that serve in the Lord in the church as a gallon container, a quart container, and a pint container. I have seen people in churches, and they're a gallon container, but you've only got a quart of liquid there. In other words, I know some people that are so gifted musically, it's unbelievable as far as their voice, and they know they can get up and wing it. They hardly have to practice because it just came natural. And he said, well, that's great. I'd do is get everybody else, and I don't even have to work at it. God knows you can do better. You want his blessing? Or the court, maybe the court container complains because he doesn't have a gallon like the gallon one, but somebody else is saying, I wish I could be like so-and-so. If you take a gallon of liquid and you've got a pint container that says, I want a gallon too, you start pouring it in, what happens? And a lot of it is wasted. Where God just tailor makes us. So now... Uh, they're given this opportunity. He gives one three, gives one two, gives them one, and uh, sends them out to see what they can uh, do with it. And they have an opportunity to do this for, I think, an extended period of time. I do not know how long. But God is going to give you, and you should hopefully, and somehow, maybe similar to what I did, say, Lord, show me where I am. If you have a class or something where you can reproduce, show me that you can use me somehow. I think he will. But let me say you better put yourself to it. Now, I'm not saying you've got to do this. My wife's sitting there if you want to check. Um, I think sometimes that uh, people have more confidence in what the wife says and thinks everything we do is preacher talk, you know. <laughs> 20 hours a week is what he owed for. One day she was talking to me. She said, why don't you start adding up the hours that you're working? And I was going to SMS. You want to know the average? 60. And not one person, Brother Tracy never asked me to work one hour past 20. I'm not saying you've got to do that. I, all I can give you is my personal experience. But you know what? To me, it wasn't like work. We were reaching people. I mean, we, like I said, we visited every campus within 50 miles. I still remember Lenny Hynode. I remember her name. All the way down to School of the Ozarks, down south of Branson, and uh, winning that girl to the Lord. Just having a great time with that. And so God got involved in it. The Lord has a lot of energy and he kind of gives us some of it as well. 
And there's no place for a draggy Christian. It just bugs me. Old people bother me a lot, especially the way they drive. <laughs> Get up to parking, you know, for the store they're going to, turn it, cars halfway in a parking lot, halfway in the street, and you start looking around. Get it off the road, you know. We got <laughs> things, you know, t- to do. And so the Lord blessed, and it was an exciting class. These guys were so, <laughs> I don't know, this is off color almost. These guys were so excited about it in the class. We, we first learned how to silkscreen back then. It's nothing now, but no churches did it back then, hardly. And then they would have their T-shirt silkscreen, and we're in the dorm at school, you know, just advertising, you know, our class. It was great. But then I think the third thing is there is a day of reckoning. Now, reckoning is a statement we use primarily with accounting. But they used to use that when I was a kid. If someone told you to do something, they said, David, now you need to get it done because when I come home, I'm going to reckon with you. Now, whether that was good or bad <laughs> depends on how we got the job done. So when he comes back with a guy that has three, I mean, yeah, you know, um, five, excuse me, the five talents, and he doubles it. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful with a few things. I'll make thee rule over many. Here's what's neat. Then a guy with two doubles it and comes back with four. Did you know if you read your Bible word for word, it's the same commendation? I'm thinking, isn't that something? Because the man did all he could, and he was faithful to use what God gave him. God was just as pleased with him as he was with the guy that had five. But then you got the guy that has one in verse 25, I was afraid. Now, I really believe he could have been because I remember how fearful I was. When I was in Bible college, I already mentioned to you, I feared working for a man whose standards were not high as mine. I feared maybe going out and trying to start a church or take a church if I wasn't even able to build an adult Sunday school class. I feared that. Now, I understand that. But just because you're afraid of it. I mean, how many people, you try to get out and go visitation, and they just say, I just can't do it, Pastor. Yes, you can. Maybe then Barclay kicks in and you just won't do it. I hope that you'll not be the man or the woman who was afraid to try or would not try. A couple of last thoughts here. Warren Wiersbe, I was reading one of his books years ago, and you may have heard this as well. And I, the way I understood it, he was visiting a man over in Europe, another pastor going to meet him at an old church and had cemeteries next to the church. And he was early, so he was walking through reading epitaphs. Now the epitaphs are pretty short. Back then, I guess they were pretty long. And one head on it. Here lies a man who did no good. And if he'd lived, he never would. And where he is and how he fares... Nobody knows, and nobody cares. And one of these days, if the Lord didn't come, you're going to probably be just like this in some church, and people are going to walk by and look at you for the last time. And I'm going to tell you as a pastor, I've been right here at the head of that casket a lot of times, they talk to each other. What do you want them to say about you? You could whistle good? You're a great fisherman? Or somebody looks into casket like I've heard of an older lady in our church that died named Mrs. Ashworth. That was the only stability in my life. The bus would pick me up and take me to church and Mrs. Ashworth would be waiting for me. An adult woman just tears poured out of her eyes because of her. 
Well, whatever you want said, you better decide now. Maybe today. Then John Greenleaf Whittier said, of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. I just want to challenge you to make your mind up. If you hadn't, and say, Lord, I'm using everything you gave me. I'll burn it all out completely. God will give you some more.